Welcome to Unpleasant Movies, the podcast dedicated to harsh and unrelenting cinema. My name is Thomas Simonsen Bambra. And my name is Svade Ogor. And today we are discussing the 2009 movie Antichrist by Lars von Trier, starring Charlotte Gainsbourg and the lovely Willem Dafoe. And uh, the cinematography is by Anthony Dodd-Mantle. He's also known for Slumdog Millionaire, amongst a host of other often more mainstream movies and also other uh, dogma movies. Yeah, he did the Dogville with Contrier previously. Yeah. The film story is, is quite simple. Uh, it's about a couple. The film starts with a scene where they are having sex and their young toddler child walks out of the window and dies. Beautifully shot, by the way. It's like a commercial. In fact, it reminds me of the commercial in Simpsons when Homer pays to have a fancy uh, commercial for his snowplowing business. And he gets this incomprehensible black and white, beautifully shot sort of thing that reminds me of the intro yeah. in this movie. Yeah, because it's like super slow-mo, like thousand frames per second, black and white, very stylistic. High contrast. With the uh, Handel's aria from Rinaldo, Lassia di Ania. Yeah, well, one of his famous bangers. Um, <laughs> so... After this, they have the funeral and she's in the hospital for a long while. And he kind of insists that they uh, travel to the cabin where she spent time with a child previously in the forest or the area called Eden. Yeah, um, he's a therapist. It's sort of uh, recommended by him as a sort of way of dealing with her. Yeah, exposure therapy in yeah, a sense. Right. And um, chaos ensues, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> yes, quite. So it's kind of like a richly symbolic film, a very beautifully shot. Very dense symbolism in this movie. Um, mm. Very rich, a lot of like visual techniques, mm. visual rhyming, a lot of gorgeous shots, yeah. a lot of different ways of achieving you know, emotion through visuals. Yeah, it's and very, it, it kind of has this, like a, a sense of like a, a dark fairy tale almost. The, the characters, they don't have names. Another name was some sort of uh, archetypal yeah. almost. Except for the son who's referred to a few times, his name is Nick. But Willem Dafoe and Charlotte Gainsborough, they're just he and she. Yeah, sense. it's quite biblical. Like a man and a woman out in the wilderness. It's Eden. Of course, there's yeah. a lot of Christian symbolism in this yeah. movie. And he himself, Flashmont, is a converted Catholic. Yeah, it's that Catholic guilt he's working through. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because one thing that's interesting to note about the film is, of course, that it was originally conceived in 2005. And the first thing he made was he just wrote the title and started writing it. And then he halted the production in fury because his producer accidentally hinted at the ending. Uh, so he rewrote it and it was written and uh, partially directed, I believe, while he was uh, severely depressed. So it was kind of his method of getting back into normalcy, more or less. Yeah, project. I read in an interview, I'm not going to read an excerpt from it, mm. uh, regarding the conception of this movie. He did the script quite quickly, and I quote here, and I didn't look at it again until we shot because for me it was more a question of making another film ever or not making another film. I could not allow myself the luxury to go into detail, so I kind of threw myself into it. I think that's actually something I've always wanted to do, to do something much more instinctively and not overdo the storyline. Mm. So it was quite a departure from his regular way of going about it. And in addition, you mentioned sort of a dark fairy tale Part of the inspiration for this movie was apparently um, he watched a documentary about the sort of raw primeval forests of Europe 
and how they were sort of uh, wild and dangerous and uncaring places and sort of uh, almost a symbol of hell that mm. humanity has sort of embraced as this tranquil and beautiful place. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Nature is typically represented in this film as something quite threatening and dangerous. That's a very common theme in fairy tales. Before modern times, nature wasn't viewed as a beautiful thing at all. It was viewed as a very dangerous place. Like there were wolves roaming about and it was legitimately dangerous. It was something to be conquered. And, yeah, or and, survived. <laughs> yeah, or survived. And you see a lot of that sort of... Uh, those themes, they resonate in the movie. A lot of dialogue and pictures mm. and everything. There's this sort of dread about the, the wilderness, the forest and nature. Mm. And the nature of man as well. Yeah, of say. course. It has a dual symbolism. Well, mm. it has a, a sort of direct meaning and, and there's just so many layers of symbolism mm. in this movie. It was also initially conceived to be a horror movie by yeah. La Frontier. And also as a departure from how he normally went about it, he watched uh, like a handful of Japanese horror movies. Yeah, Ringu and stuff. <laughs> yeah, which is, that's interesting because it's, in my opinion, nothing like those movies on a sort of um, superficial level. No. But yeah. on a visual and sort of deeper symbolic level, yes, I can see it. And I can see how that sort of permeates the idea and the conception of this movie. And it's also a little bit of a return to the stuff that he did before, because he, he has ventured into horror territory before with uh, The Kingdom, Rigget, the series. And uh, I mean, it's generally quite, uh, you know, there's not jump scare so much, but it's quite uneasy. It has its airy, very intense bits at the end. Uh. It has some like hallmarks of horror movie mm. making. And it also has this incredible tension and sense of dread that mm. is excellent and very horror-like. Yeah. Well, I think of it as, a, as an art house horror. There's a few of these really nice films that kind of combine horror and art house aesthetics. And this is one of the better examples, I think. Yeah. He actually talks about that in this interview, with, which uh, he did yeah. an interview with um, Luke Goodsell in uh, November of 2009, which was just uh, half a year after it was released. Yeah. And he did an interview for Rotten Tomatoes. And he talked about how sort of the horror genre allowed him to use symbolism and use sort of any visual image he wanted to mm. without any restrictions, mm. which was a huge part of the draw for him, I think, mm. of uh, the horror genre or moving towards that genre. Of course, it turned into something a bit more complex than that. But that's one of the reasons why this movie, as far as I understand, is so densely packed with symbolism mm. and visual imagery and all sorts of things that you could read a lot into, is that he was drawn to it because of, um, well, initially the idea of horror allowing him to do these things. Oh, yeah. But also just allowing him a more free form way of expressing things that he, he didn't necessarily have an intention behind it. I agree. I think one of the pitfalls of understanding this movie is to specifically pinpoint to what things mean and what they are and kind of project. I mean, it does have biblical symbolism, but putting too much of like the biblical and pagan, it kind of misses the point a little bit. It's, it's like watching David Lynch films. If you're too concerned about solving the puzzle, you're kind of missing the experience. Yeah. Lafontrier has talked about this. He said that if you ask Lynch to actually give a, a sort of answer to the meanings in his movies, he never does this. No. He's <laughs> uh, incredibly reticent to say anything about meanings mm. in his movies and he always clams up. But if he was to answer, Lafontrier remarks that that he probably wouldn't have a simple explanation for it. And if he did, you'd probably be disappointed. Mm -hmm. And that having these simple explanations in movies often work against the movie. Like, it makes it a cheaper work of art, in his opinion. Yeah, it becomes less complex and entwined. Yeah, and he goes on to say that it's more 
emotional to him. Like it has emotional meaning. Yeah. And that's probably more important than the, the sort of, uh, what would you say, narrative or, or mm. symbolic specific mm. meanings. Mm. Like one of the things that's interesting about adding symbolism to movies, in my opinion, is that it can have work on several different layers, yeah. several different levels depending on where you view it from. Like, what angle are you viewing this from? Mm. Like we discussed earlier with, we need to talk about Kevin. Mm. It works differently if you view it like from the mother's experiential sort of... Subjective point of view. Subjective point of view, right? Yeah. Than if you view it as sort of a, a more standard, disjointed director's sort of viewpoint almost. Yeah, and in this film as well, I think that... Because the main character, Charlotte Gainsborough, she... At some point, she has a, a twist where she goes from like the despair and the grief and into more like an aggressive antagonist almost. And um, she kind of recontextualizes previous scenes. For example, the scene from the beginning when Nick, the toddler, falls out the window. There's a scene towards the end where you see that bit again, except she can see him walking out as if she could have changed it. And you can take that literally as if it's, okay, this is what actually happened. Or you can... Think of it as that's her guilt kind of projecting itself backwards in time and framing her as the evil creature who knew. Uh, and there are several hints. It's interesting, this first part, because it's there's several small bits. Like one of the first images you see is that kid's teddy bear hanging on a balloon as if it's been planted so that he'll try and grab it and go out of the, uh, his cage. Yeah, like a bait. Yeah, and the baby caller is it turned off the sound. And there's these few things that might kind of uh, implicate her in that sense. And, you know, it's a really stylized section of the film. I mean, there are several sections of the film that are highly stylized, but this being in black and white. Yeah, um, the, but the, the interesting thing is that yeah. they're often stylized in different ways. Yeah, yeah quite right. So it's interesting to read reviews or opinions about this film because a lot of people project, I think, ideas about Lars von Trier himself as this provocateur, which he certainly is. And, you know, it was accused quite strongly of being misogynist, which I think is a mistake and kind of cheapens the, um, well, it kind of lets you off the hook in terms of looking at the film closely. I can see why you'd make that statement, mm. but but uh, I think it's way too simplistic. Yeah. And uh, von Trier has said that his perspective is more from the woman's perspective. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, because he's writing himself from a place of depression, deep mm. depression, mm. and lack of sort of motivation to do anything in his life. So he's in a, a sort of pit of despair. Mm. And to him, he's writing this destructive female character, mm. but it's not from a place of antipathy. It's from a place of deep, deep empathy. Yeah. I think that's, that's how I sort yeah. of seen it because... There are a lot of destructive and horrible scenes in this this movie, and you can sort of point the finger at mm. Lars von Trier for putting a female character in these sort of positions of mm -hmm. uh, exerting violence upon uh, a man. But that would be, firstly, it would be simplistic, but secondly, it would be sort of too one-dimensional. Yeah. Because you, you can certainly see it from that point of view, but you can also see it from other points of view because this is such a dense movie. Well, my issue with that, kind of interpretation is that, I mean, he's, he's often, several of his movies from Breaking the Waves and Dancing in the Dark, they have female protagonists who endure suffering to a pretty intense degree. And um, rather than accusing him of forcing pain upon female characters, I think it's much more of a project of taking them seriously and like examining reality of female existence to an extent that, you know, a lot of films, they won't. Uh, right. 
I think a lot of the criticism that has been levied towards this movie resonates with the criticism of another movie we recently watched mm. this podcast, which was Irreversible. Yeah. Both movies were uh, accused of both being misogynistic and both movies were accused of being shocking and horrific for the sake of it. Both criticisms, in my view, are completely, well, not completely, but they are invalid in my point of view. Mm. But it's interesting how both of these movies, which in my opinion... I'm just going to say right now, are both very good movies, have been criticized for this sort of, both this perceived lack of uh, meaning Mm. or senselessness Mm. and the perceived sense of meaning, Mm. which is this sort of uh, violence against women and and sort of stuff being, if not glamorized, then at least sort of uh, shown in a fetishistic uh, Mm. or or sort of um, two-sensory way. I find it kind of strange because this movie even deals with sort of, I wouldn't say the criticisms of it, but it deals specifically with the history of violence against women. Yeah, and to one extent, I think you can talk about the spectator as well as they, they are looking at film in terms of, is it pleasure or is it pain? It's ambivalence. Yeah. There is this interesting blurring of pleasure and pain in this movie. I think all the sex scenes are sort of they're portrayed very violently and... <laughs> They don't seem pleasurable to anyone. They're, well, they're always like, well, there is this sort of sense of, uh, I guess, sensory overload almost uh, when you when you view these. Well, I wouldn't say that, I wouldn't say the first sex scene looks unpleasant. That's them having sex in the shower. No, maybe not unpleasant, but it looks very rough and sort of they're disturbing all the items in the room, and it looks very like brutal compared to the sereneness of the snow mm. and the baby playing with a teddy bear, right? Mm. Well, I didn't experience this brutal. I understand what you mean. I mean, it's it's no, passionate. But I, uh, but, but I agree, it's not quite on the same, same level as the sex scenes later. Mm. It's very beautiful. It's mm. so gorgeously shot. Mm. So it adds a sumptuousness to it that the later sex scenes do not have. And that's when it varies more into the sort of horror territory. It's a very violent movie. Yeah. I think a lot of people react negatively to things like this because they are extremely unpleasant. And you're, you as a viewer are subjected to a form of violence and a reaction to that is a defensive one uh, for many people particularly if i mean i guess if you prefer to be entertained or maybe intellectually titillated in an easy way uh, or not in a way that this does at least because it does demand quite a lot just the same as irreversible this was declared the most shocking and brutal film that's ever been on the Cannes Film Festival, <laughs> which talked, is interesting because this came out a few years later. So We've talked about this before, yeah. the, the sort of the fainters at yeah. Cannes. Yeah. They're always so fucking shocked. But the, the thing that's interesting about that is their initial reviews and kind of uh, opinions, they resonate throughout the journalistic world for a while. Yeah, yeah. And then it kind of dies down. And then when people kind of uh, a few years later pick it up and look at it again, there's often a different type of consensus. I mean, it's so. usually a sign of a movie that's interesting. All of these movies, well, most of them that, that I recall off, off the top of my head anyway, mm. have since had a sort of critical repraisal. Yeah. So I would sort of take that as a badge of honor almost. Mm. <laughs> To have the can audience or, or critics faint or get upset. I would say this movie is shockingly horrible in some scenes. Yeah. And I really love it. Yeah, there are scenes of genital mutilation that are quite graphic and direct. Yeah, but actually to me, the, I think the most horrific scenes are some of the animal scenes. Yeah. Especially when um, 
it's midway through the movie mm. when um, they're at the cabin yeah. in Eden and this baby bird suddenly falls from a tree onto an anthill. Mm. There's this extreme close-up of this bird like and, and ants crawling over it and then a fucking uh, bird of prey <laughs> swoops down and just takes it onto a branch and just fucking rips its head off. It's so horrible and it's so out of the blue too. Mm. It just suddenly appears. And there's a lot of these scenes in the movie that are seemingly out of the blue. Though... When I think about it, a lot of them are sort of prefaced by changes in the environment. There's a sudden gust of wind, for instance, yeah, yeah. for something horrible change. Uh, some moving in the bushes, uh, yeah, peaking or, some curiosity, and then you're punished for uh, exploring it. Uh. Right. <laughs> or like the chestnuts falling yeah. on the roof. Yeah. There's a lot of beautiful, both like um, musical and audio symbolism and uh, just visual imagery. There's so much to sort of grab onto. Apparently, actually, the sound design, like the score bits, which is, they're not like songs, it's more like a sound design piece. Most of those sounds, or if not all of them, are made by the sort of sounds you would find in nature, like wood and stone and stuff. Messed around with digitally, but it's kind of like um, a soundscape built out of natural uh, materials. Yeah, it has a very primeval feeling to it. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it has a lot of those sort of horror vibes. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of sort of resonance with stuff you'd find in a regular horror movie, mm. except it's contextualized in a slightly different way. Mm. There are these sort of uh, moments of um, sort of sub-bass and, and these like deep uh, infrasounds. And there's uh, moments of like pure noise and stuff. And it is sort of uh, cued in with horror, but often it's just the horror of looking at a forest or something like that. And later in the movie, it's sort of brought back and contextualized, mm. maybe in a more horrific way, but it's used very efficiently. And uh, it's just very... Like the viewing experience, as horrible as it is, it's very, very nice too. It's very beautiful. Yes, yeah, it's really poetic and very engaging. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the horror things, they're kind of, um, I mean, they're like connected to the grief or connected to like the despair of the characters and the situations. It, there's not like an external monster. I mean, it's often through nature, but it's connected to the character. I think. Yeah. yeah, and it's deeply psychological too, yeah. which is why viewing it from a sort of just a, uh, like an external narrative point mm. of view is so weird because it's clearly not trying to tell a simplistic story from A to B. Mm. It's moving into sort of uh, experiential and, and, um, and emotional truths, feelings that are hard to describe and often pointless to describe. Mm. And it's more interested in sort of conveying a sense of depression and anxiety and yeah. guilt and these things without necessarily trying to explain them. And it works incredibly well, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. Apparently, he's talked about like the left hand and right hand of filmmaking and the, the left hand being akin to putting aside the sort of stuff that you've learned, the skills you've accomplished. You put that aside to do something else. I, I think the dogma movement was very clearly that, where you put new rules that means that you can't do lighting and can't do that sort of stuff. And right. he said about this film that in a sense, this is a left-handed film because he couldn't use his right hand because of his depression. He just had to apply different means of communicating. Right. It's as if you're an artist and your your right hand is broken and you can't paint, right? You have yeah. to learn to do it with your left hand and it the mm. result is different and it's probably more difficult, but it can also be probably interesting artistically. Mm. 
that's one of the things that fascinated me about Lars von Trier. I mean, you can like him or dislike him, but he's always sort of interesting in how he approaches movie making, yeah. not just how he approaches a specific movie. And yeah. um, that's one of the really fascinating things about him yeah, as, really. uh, as a director. And one of the things that I've actually found very inspiring about him is it seems like he approaches each movie, well, very explicitly with dogma, but a lot of them others as well. Like he sets himself a series of rules, like a series of formal barriers in terms of what he can and can't do. And often his films are divided into chapters and he makes a few like choices in terms of the, the structure and in terms of filmatic limitations. And one of the things he's really good at, I think, is uh, he talks about editing in terms of not caring so much about the formalities. You're not so concerned about the transportation, how you ended up there. He, it's about emotional editing. So he uses a lot of the hard cuts. So he'll in the same scene where people are talking, they're talking naturally, and he does a hard cut on the same character as you're watching them, which creates a disjointed effect. But it's a very emotionally evocative. It, it works really well, I think. Yeah, it, it really does. The use of the camera in this movie is brilliant. One of the things to make it brilliant is the sort of contrast between the sort of pleasant and predictable ways of using the camera and unpleasant and sort of out of focus and um, directionless views that you're served mm. are seemingly directionless. There's a very fine sense of balance that's seemingly intuitive because it breaks a lot of rules. Right? Yeah, yeah, it does, yeah. Uh, that makes the movie seem very um, emotionally true to itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he'll break the line of sights if he feels it's relevant to the situation. Right, but that's like that's like good jazz music, right? Mm -hmm. You have to know the rules before you can break them. And he really does know the rules. Mm -hmm. And he breaks them willingly and to great effect. And that is very bold and is very brave of him as a, a movie maker. He's always been a brave director, yeah. which is... Also, why he's been antagonized a lot and viewed as sort of this brash jerk. Yeah, um, but it has to be said, I mean, he's a bit of a prankster, not only in his films, but like in their surrounding, there's been a lot of controversies around like comments or actions he's done. And, um, you know, <laughs> considered as a, as a person who misbehaves. And uh, he said himself that, uh, yes, he does misbehave and he does it because he feels he needs to. because He's kind of in a position where he, you know, he can finance his movies and he's got his uh, film companies and Tropa. You know, he can make the films that he wants to do more or less. And that puts him in a position that gives him the opportunity to uh, misbehave and break a few rules, which a lot of people can't. Yeah, he does have the leverage. And he's also, he has that luxury, unlike a lot of people working in the sort of constraints of Hollywood. He does have these sort of uh, liberties mm. he can take. And it's brilliant that some directors can do that. Mm. He is certainly sort of a trickster character mm. in the sort of uh, Hall of Fame directors. <laughs> yeah. uh, he's a, an interesting character in his own right and an interesting director. What did you feel about the sort of uh, the splitting of this movie into three parts? So uh, there's... Uh, the three chapters, rather. Yeah, yeah. There's these three beggars, which were first introduced to as these tin soldier toys and also as a, another toy they're not named at that point but you can see like the it's the uh, fox crow and dare and the three beggars are called pain despair and grief and they're initially represented as these tin soldiers but then as these animals and they show up at different points uh, and each chapter is also named after pain despair and grief and there's also a prologue and an epilogue yeah which are these black and white uh, slow-mo scenes the three chapters, they're kind of um, connected to each animal in a sense. Like the, the second chapter, 
it ends just with a with a fox. She turns around because Willem Dafoe is walking after um, Charlotte Gainsborough. She's kind of running away. They've had kind of a confrontation, and then he notices some movement in some shrubbery, and he kind of turns around and looks to this, and he sees a fox, kind of like a dirty, wet. It seems like maybe it's biting itself or there's some kind of situation there. Yeah, it seems like it's biting its own entrails. Yeah. It looks like it's in horrible pain. Yeah. It turns around, their eyes meet, and it just says, uh, suddenly it speaks and says, chaos reigns. And that's such a potent scene. It's amazing. I love it. Yeah. It's so good. Uh, and that kind of closes that chapter. Yeah. And um, I got to say the sort of, uh, the visuals are very convincing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Extremely well done. Yeah. Actually, that scene, um, it's a combination of an actual animal and CG. There's a, they had a fox specifically trained. I think very early on they knew they were going to do this. So they had an animal trainer who had to open his mouth at a specific point. So they filmed that, but then they went back and also CG corrected. Uh, I think most of the digital work was done in Poland. The film was shot mainly in Germany, but it's kind of a, a joint, many European countries connected. And yeah, it, it, you know, like Irreversible, it's one of these films that has amazing CG that doesn't look like CG. Well, that's the sort of beauty of good CG is that mm. you don't notice it, which leads to sort of um, hatred towards CG because the times you see it is mm. when it's bad, mm. right? Well, there's an exception in this one, I think. Because uh, later on, there's a scene when also she is running away and you have these not so subtle, but the, the shots are quite short. And there's like um, distortion, like a very clear visual, like a bending of the environment. Oh, yeah. yeah. But you're meant uh, to see it, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're meant to see it. And it's very like an emotional thing. That's a very nice way of using obvious CG. There's no doubt <laughs> what it is. It's not a difficult thing to pull off in a sense. But it looks really good and it charges the situation. Uh, yeah, that's that's an example of one of the sort of visual tricks that mm. this movie uses. Mm. That's very bold and mm. uh, works very well. Yeah. In my opinion, uh, well, in my opinion, I think they sort of comment on it. Well, Defoe's character sort of comments on it when yeah. he's talking to her. Yeah. It's in the scene where he's sort of pretending to be nature. Mm. And he's talking to her as part of a sort of therapy. Yeah, yeah, these exercises he does. Yeah, and he says... Fear distorts reality. Mm. So if you sort of look at it in that context, mm. it is always used in scenes of fear. You can't read that into it. It's just really sort of quirky and cool and uh, horrible at the same time. Mm. Yeah. It's also worth mentioning just aesthetically that the chapters, their paintings or something like childlike, rough. It's, yeah, it's kind made, of raw. It's made by an artist called uh, Per Kirkeby, the Danish artist. Uh, per Kirkeby? They look really nice. They kind of set the atmosphere. The title of the film also, Antichrist, is... It's style. just uh, the whole movie is so visually thought through. Mm, yeah. It's quite uh, quite delicious. Yeah, yeah. Because it also has these, these other slow-motion scenes, which is just like these perfect nature scenes, like a painting with extreme slow-mo, just the character walking. Yeah, these are the sort of, uh, well, not dream sequences, but more like um, uh, hypnosis situations. Yeah. And uh, also partly dream sequences throughout mm. the movie. And it's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. It's so beautiful. The slow motion is so slow. Yeah. It looks like they're standing still, but they're moving incredibly slow. Yeah. Yeah. And the lighting, and it's sort of blurry, and it's full of steam or mist. Yeah, fog. And, uh, it's very painting-like. So gorgeous. It looks like these, you know, old sublime paintings like Caspar Friedrich or these uh, really sort of 
old school German Nordic sublime nature is dangerous and man is small. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but also uh, I get a sort of also a sort of feeling of uh, like the pre-Raphaelites mm. and the sort of sumptuousness of nature yeah. uh, combined with the sort of danger and also romanticism, but also the romanticism of sort of barbaric times, mm. uh, quote unquote, of sort of the the wilderness, the dangerousness of mm. paganism and, and all of that's the, the sort of connotations you get from those scenes. And it's mm. um, probably one of my favorite parts in the movie are those scenes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they stand out so strikingly. And the, uh, the last one of these, when he's uh, Willem Dafoe is walking away from the cabin at the end. It's Woods, the epilogue. Well, no, no, it's before, just before the epilogue because okay. it's still in color. And you have this, this old rotten tree he's walking past. There's an old dead tree. Yeah. So he's walking past this and the nature looks normal and then it kind of fades over to like loads of these dead bodies, these white gold bodies. And that's almost like Hieronymus Bosch in the kind of depictions of mutilations. and. Uh, yeah, it's very Boschian or Peter Brühl, the elder, or it's very reminiscent of those Dutch masters of, of hellscapes. Yeah, the grotesque. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. It's yeah. so, so good. Yeah. Another scene which is uh, slightly less reminiscent of it, but also mm. reminiscent is the scene where they're fucking against the tree outside, which is used in a lot of promos and mm. on the cover. Yeah, the posters are typically. Yeah, where uh, it sort of zooms in on Willem Dafoe's head and it zooms out again and the tree and all the roots are sort mm. of, there's these human hands and arms grabbing yeah. out of it. Entwined around. So visually interesting. I'm not quite sure what it's trying to tell me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Something about nature probably. This is theme of genocide. Uh, As in murder of women. Yeah, because the she character, when she was there previously with her son, she's uh, working on her PhD. Yeah, she's working on her, well, ostensibly working on her thesis. Yeah, about genocide and like the murder and uh, gruesome mistreatment of women through the ages, like the 1700s and... and yeah. Yeah, there's this scene where, where uh, Willem Dafoe's character goes up on the loft and mm. he discovers all these sort of... This artwork from like the the fifteenth, sixteenth uh, yeah. century about like uh, burning witches and um, yeah, well, the seventeenth century uh, yeah. with witch burning and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, all this horrible dark imagery. It's a really mm. cool scene. Mm. And he also finds this book where you read about the three beggars. Mm. There's this star sign, yeah. false constellation. And actually, like visually and emotionally, it sort of reminded me a bit of Hereditary. Actually, yeah. That also has a loft scene, which mm. is different, but emotionally it does sort of inhabit the same space as a lot of horror movies, good horror movies. Yeah. There's a kind of like a, a lore reveal almost, like you have uh, right. some of the backstories revealed through imagery, like images on the wall or notes in a book. Or, right, but but here it sort of serves a more emotional and symbolic purpose than a purely narrative one. Mm. In a horror movie, she would be evil, right? Yeah. Or crazy, mm. driven crazy by grief. Mm. Right, and uh, and in the, a sense, she into is. sort of uh, <laughs> the Shining-like madness, yeah. like Jack Torrance in The Shining. Yeah. Uh, actually, there's sort of not a callback to that, but a sort of a super horror tropey uh, thing where you can read her uh, handwriting, mm. and it just yeah. gradually devolves into just scribbles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> such a such a horror scene. Yeah, but works great at the same time. Mm. Uh, it's really nice. I mean, and she does, you know, devolve into craziness. She does become quite violent and threatening. And there's uh, implications of maltreatment of the son where she's been putting on the shoes, forcibly the wrong shoes on the wrong feet. Yeah, and that's uh, sort of sort of horrible. 
There's yeah. this scene where you see her forcing these boots on wrong feet. Yeah, the crying child. <laughs> because uh, Willem Dafoe's character has gotten the autopsy report and there's a, there's a line there about uh, the only sort of thing worth noting about his body that's happened to him previously is that he has deformed uh, bones mm. in his feet. Yeah, unrelated to the accident. Unrelated yeah. to the accident. And then you see this seeming flashbacks mm. at least. Um, yeah, and he later finds these uh, Polaroids where images of the sun shoes are on. Yeah. I think if you just view it as a sort of narrative movie, it doesn't work quite as well. You you sort mm. of have to let your guard down a bit mm. and sort of accept it on a more allegorical or symbolic level, which can be difficult for a lot of people. Mm. I'm not particularly fond of allegory or sort of heavy-handed use of symbolism. No, but it doesn't its... really work like that either. If you try to have a specific allegory for this, it doesn't it doesn't really work like that. No, but that's what makes the movie work too, right? Yeah. It doesn't, like, it has to. this allegorical feel, yeah. but it doesn't have any specific answers. You sort of yeah. have, have to let it wash over you and you sort of have to take in the whole of it without sort of dwelling about too many plot points or whatever. I don't think that helps you very much. Mm. Although I wouldn't say there's lots of plot holes necessarily, mm. but a lot of the context you might be looking for just isn't there because that's not the point of the movie. Yeah, no. I mean, it, it has emotional basis. That's right. the thing. It's and it has emotional truth. Yeah. Uh, but narrative-wise, it is extremely disjointed and just gradually getting crazier. At the same time, it's not extremely disjointed. I mean, you can follow it perfectly fine. Right. It's not as if you're confused about what's happening. No, but I mean, it, it could work on a narrative level. Like, oh. you can have the, the, the scenes playing out the way they do and... And the the weirdest shit you can chalk up to like dreams or fantasies or whatever. Mm. That's not a very satisfying way of looking at the movie, but mm. you surely can do it. But that's, again, that's like, it works on a lot of levels. And, yeah. and that's that's uh, what makes it such a, such a great movie to talk about and think about and uh, just appreciate, right? Mm. And rewatch and just, yeah. But, uh, but I also think it's not as good a movie if you think too much about it, because there's so much to think about that it can be a bit overwhelming, I think. Well, at the same time, you know, rewatches are rewarding in this sense because you, you're kind of picking up several new bits and you're kind of reminding yourself of things you've forgotten a bit. I mean more thinking about it in the way that you're sort of searching for the reason why, mm. the sort of what's the dare really representing or what's the sort of the the beggars, what what's true. Like if, if you mm. think about these things too much, I, I think you're sort of missing the point. Yeah. At the same time, I mean, there's some things that are quite, you know, I hadn't thought of this until I read it at some um, review or another, but like the, the twisted, like a dead tree that they walk past or interact with it several times. You can think of it in terms of uh, like a, a dead version or an anti-version of the tree of life. And uh, he's hiding beneath it from her when she's in her most intense hunting him down. I think like it doesn't necessarily mean a very specific thing. But you're allowed to project like the imagery in interesting ways. Uh, it's appealing to me, at least. Yeah, the tree is interesting, actually. She mentions it in her first sort of hypnosis session mm. at the train when they're traveling towards Eden and the cabin. Yeah, she's talking about she's sort of visualizing how she's traveling up there because she has this fear of the woods. Yeah, uh, and she says about the tree that it's uh, sort of a, has a, this big, thick trunk and, a, and personality. Yeah. <laughs> So it's certainly always thematically important, even from the very start of the movie. And uh, this is also the tree of which they have sex where the hands come out. So there's kind of like an element of like the destructive uh, sexuality. Uh. Right. Like, 
I really agree with the thing you said about this movie having a dark sort of fairy tale vibe mm. because the, also this partition into threes, this mm. sort of yeah. uh, all these sort of very timeless symbolisms like trees and animals and mm. these kinds of things, the way things repeat as symbols. Like you have when she's describing the the sort of in the first hypnosis dream again, mm. she's describing that there's there is no bird song. The deers aren't there mm. and the fox isn't in its foothole, mm. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's true. And then you have these things sort of repeating again and again mm. on different levels throughout mm. the movie. And that feels very fairytale-like to me. Yeah, like uh, the way things uh, repeat in threes. It's almost like a nursery rhyme as well. Like a Yeah, a horrible nursery, nursery rhyme, yeah. which of course all nursery rhymes have this sort of horrible, deep, dark secret yeah, that like we all know. Political allegory or yeah. something. Or maybe not, but, but it's fun to imagine that anyway. Some of them do. Yeah. Um, but of course it's incredibly hard to pinpoint the origin of folklore, which is mm. why folklore is incredibly appealing to me. Mm. It's, it's sort of this consciousness of the masses mm. in a nation or a, or yeah, a place. Yeah, the subconsciousness almost. <laughs> yeah, and that's incredibly fascinating. And you get this feeling watching uh, Antichrist. There yeah. is this sense of common consciousness of humanity, you know, mm. death, life, childbirth, parenthood being human, like there's all these sort of deep, deep themes of human consciousness mm. and it all works in, on this deep, unexplainable level that we all sort of intuitively can grasp the language of. Yeah, and you know, like the language is kind of twisted here as well because things are wrong, they're uneasy, they're kind of threatening or unnamed. You know, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, it's an unpredictable place, like chaos does reign in this uh, Garden of Eden. It really does. Chaos reigns supremely and beautifully in this movie. Just thinking about something you mentioned earlier, like you're not always aware of what's real and what's not in this movie. Mm. One of the scenes I also really like is she's describing how she was there previously with their son. And she's describing hearing the scream in the forest, right? Yeah. And she's walking around the forest trying to locate the sort of origin of the sound or mm. the source. Because it's, it's, it's child's uh, screaming. Yeah, it's child crying out in what sounds like pain or fear. Mm. And she's walking around trying to locate the child and she can't do it. And she goes back to the cabin and sees her son sitting in the sort of tool shed mm. that many horrible <laughs> episodes will take place in that tool shed mm. later. But but it doesn't seem like the sound is coming from him. No, no, he's he's certainly not screaming. He's just sitting there quite happily. So it has this really sort of eerie horror quality to it. Yeah, really. And I love it. Yeah, it's really uneasy. And that and that also, you know, goes back to like the folklorish, the kind of horror, um, like the nature is a dangerous place where, because, you know, there's a lot of like pagan symmetry and shamanism and that sort of stuff also lingering in the backwaters of this film. Yeah, and black magic and mm. witchcraft and all these sort of, uh, these sort of things that Christianity or, or a Christian viewpoint would mm. see as absolutely horrible. Mm. Uh, but there's also this sense that also enforces the folkloric vibe of this movie is the isolation from, from modern society. Yeah. They're placed in basically a situation equivalent to living in the Middle Ages. Yeah. There is no sort of amenities. There, there is no electricity. They, they have to like light a fire. They have no sort of very little, at least, modern comforts. And in that situation, folkloric tales and tales of horror and fairy tales and stuff have much more power. I think the power of fairy tales and folkloric stories and myths and stuff like that has definitely lost its sort of uh, energy and power. Well, they've been softened so much. They're yeah. kind of sanitized to a degree where they're just nice, cute little stories. Yeah, and sanitized to a degree, like where you have uh, Disney-fied versions of, of stories that were much more horrible 
previously. But also the 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 sense of horror comes from a, a place where when you live near the world wilderness mm. and you live far away from other people, you you have this sense of not being protected. And uh, that permeates this movie to an extreme degree. And it works very well in terms of sort of bringing about that sense of uh, thematic uh, wholeness to the whole thing. Yeah, no, I agree. All in all, I give it four popcorns out of five. <laughs> Is that an on-cinema reference? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. That's great. Yeah, it's to me, it's such a striking movie. I remember when I first saw it in festival when it came out, I was just awestruck. It kind of felt, I mean, he's never, to me at least, he's always been interesting, but it was kind of like a comeback almost because he hadn't made a film for a little bit. And his last film was more like a comedy, like a weird, weird comedy called uh, The Boss of It All, The Return for the Hela, which is, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not a bad movie. It's quite entertaining. He, had, he has this weird gimmick in that film where he has a camera on like a digitally controlled um, system and it's programmed to move about randomly in the scene. So he doesn't know where the camera is going to look in the scene. It can look all around in the room. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, so it, it's a really weird little film. But, and then this just came as a shock because stylistically, you know, I mean, Dogville is also quite stylistically nicely done, but in a very different type of category, I think. Yeah, yeah but, but he's also known for making quite aesthetically unappealing things sometimes. Yeah. Very raw, very rough, mm-hmm. very handheld. Like that was a huge part of the dogma mode of movie making. Yeah. And also uh, The Kingdom. Was yeah. Just horrible sepia toned. Uh, yeah, but that's also way. kind of aestheticized. It does have a lot of this uh, horror imagery, like the, the intro scene to Riget uh, has this really beautifully like foggy scenes of women washing their clothes in the river and uh, yeah, yeah yeah but but i mean he was uh, he's known for sort of having this mm. often it's working to to a large degree but uh, this sort of ugly mode of of movie making as a sort of uh, tool and then this movie is just so visually beautiful yeah yeah it really is i actually i have some bits of trivia that might be fun the first one is that when he originally kind of um presented the film for sale in Cannes. He had two different versions, one, one which was the Catholic version, one which was the Protestant version. And it's uh, beautiful. And the former had some, had like the explicit scenes removed while the latter was uncut. It's kind of like a, a funny, funny thing. Um, yeah, sounds like something he'd do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this is an interesting bit of, I hadn't heard about this film before, but originally they were going to make a video game connected to this called Eden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read about that. It's a 2009 article in a Danish newspaper. And it was going to be, as a quote, it will be a self-therapeutic journey into your own darkest fears and will break the boundaries of what you can and can't do in video games, said the video game director, Morten Eversen. This never came to fruition. Uh, who knows what it would have been like, yeah. It sounds incredible. Yeah, it sounds interesting. Uh, and like, just like mood-wise, there is another Danish game that, I mean, there's no connection, but it kind of reminds me a little bit of this mood-wise. It's Limbo or also Inside by uh, Ant Janssen. Uh, has kind of this uh, darkly uh, tone to it. Yeah, I can, I can see the connection there. Uh, mm. Very dark games. Um, mm. The gameplay is sort of not really that much tied into the sort of psychologicalness no. of it, but... No. Um, but uh, it still, it's quite psychological. Yeah. Um, it just had me think about it when I read about it. Yeah, that's interesting. The thing. It would be cool to see. I imagine it like sort of a 
maybe like a, a Silent Hill-esque uh, sort of cabin yeah. game that's much more focused on like psychological shit. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I mean, you have some examples of games that, you know, break like the fourth wall in different ways in terms of what you can and can't do. Yeah. So, yeah it might have been an inter- interesting thing. There's been more of it recently too. So that's sort of a meta game, sort of uh, using that as a mechanic in the game has been more and more common. And of course, it's it's almost as if gaming is sort of entering into the sort of postmodernism of gaming yeah. in a lot of ways, at least when it comes to kind indie game making. Deconstructing a little bit. Yeah. Another interesting uh, reference is um, August Strindberg's uh, autobiographical novel Inferno, which... He also wrote during a kind of um, breakdown or crisis and uh, I haven't read it. I'm sure it's interesting, but Frontier uh, himself has referred to it as a kind of a, a relevant uh, artwork. Yeah, Frontier so, uh, uh, really seems to be very into August Strindberg, mm. which is, of course, uh, one of Sweden's biggest authors, playwrights. Yeah. And also dealing a lot with the themes of, of man and woman and, and sort of the relationship and distance between them. Mm. In a way that apparently La Frontier finds a bit childish. Yeah. So this is uh, maybe a more complex and nuanced take on it. But again, I don't really feel like the movie is that much about the relationship between a man and a woman. No, absolutely not. It's more no. about this personal experiential uh, exploration. <laughs> yeah, and, and a lot of like the dynamic between them, I feel, also has to do with his experience with therapy in general. Because uh, Willem Dafoe's character, he has a different... Um, these small games or exposure therapy, which one actually uses, you know, they did research this stuff a lot and he probably has personal experience with it. Uh, no, he said he used directly experience from his own therapy yeah. in this movie. So, so it's in, I don't feel it's necessarily criticizing the methods, but, but like there's a, there's a tone of voice to Willem Dafoe's character and his, his relation to her is kind of problematic in a sense. It, there's a certain amount of arrogance to it, I think. Um, yeah, but also this sense of wanting to help and maybe not managing yeah. it anyway. Mm. And and it really, if you view it from that point of view, mm. the sort of breakdown of, of Charlotte Gainsborough's character mm. seems a lot more natural because she's breaking down mentally and she's not getting the help she needs even though she's doing this therapy. And even when she's lashing out at Willem Dafoe, she's sort of, why aren't you helping me? Why aren't you helping yeah. me? So yeah. She's in a panic. It seems quite natural from point of view of just breaking down emotionally and mentally yeah. because of depression and anxiety. Mm. And I got to say, uh, Willem Dafoe and Charlotte Gainsborough are yeah. brilliant in this movie. They're so good. They are such good actors, mm. both of them. Mm. The way Charlotte Gainsborough cries, for instance, yeah, is yeah. so convincing yeah, it's, that it's it breaks like your heart when you hear it. Yeah. And her screaming also yeah. is yeah. so, so... It comes from like the depth of this human suffering. It's yeah. so beautiful. It feels really painful. Yeah, yeah I'm very it really sincere. does. It really does. Yeah. And uh, Willem Dafoe is like this contrast to this character. Mm. He's like very, very emotionally stable. Mm. It doesn't seem like he almost notices the passing of his son. Like he, you, yeah. you see it like in the funeral, in the start yeah. of the movie. He's, he breaks he's down. broken down, yeah. but he recovers very quickly. Mm. And he doesn't seem emotionally traumatized by it in any form of the same way as Charlotte Gainsborough. Yeah, I read that a little bit as he's kind of invested in her grief. He makes her his project and tries to deal with, and perhaps pushes aside his own to some extent. Um, yeah. And that's I guess, my projection. Yeah, like, um, and, and mm. like to me, it's also like sort of portrayed in a way that he's, or at least Charlotte Gainsborough's character seems to feel like mm. at certain moments that he's sort of an emotional vampire. Mm. He likes her suffering. He doesn't want her to be well. He, mm. do, he sort of wants... He hasn't been interested in her before she started mm. uh, she says during that. the suffering. She says that, but I'm not sure that I always believe the things that that character says. I mean, that might also be... No, no, no. Uh, I'm not saying she mm. definitely believes that. I, 
I think she may convince herself mm. that that's the case in those moments. Yeah, in retrospect. Yeah. Because there's a scene previously where she accuses him of not joining her and their son at the cabin. And then he very calmly says that he was of the impression that she'd asked him not to come so that she could do her thesis in peace. And that very interestingly, you know, that kind of explores memory as well. You know, how do you remember things later on when you're kind of reconstructing, particularly in like painful situations, so you're kind of putting the puzzle pieces together in different ways. Uh, yeah, yeah, I remember talking about this uh, when uh, we discussed, uh, we need to talk about Kevin. Mm. There is this, like, he, I, I feel like Willem Dafoe's character, although he's seen as very stoic and sort of uh, emotionally maybe distant, mm. he does seem sympathetic to me. Absolutely, yeah. He's invested, like, emotionally. Yeah, and he's and, played yeah. very nuanced, uh, in mm. a very nuanced way by Willem Dafoe. Mm. It's just a delightful masterclass in acting for both these wonderful actors. Yeah, they're, they're absolutely great. I hadn't really discovered her as an actor before I saw this. This is kind of like a... Well, she's, she's known for being uh, the daughter of Serge Gainsborough. This, yeah. I remember us talking about how, how in France there's always been this sort of slightly creepy well it's been a problem all over the world but mm. the sort of vibe earlier like of pedophilia not being very dangerous mm. and it almost being like a joke mm. and she and her father had this hit called uh, uh, lemon incest i think really yeah and she was 13 at the time and they the, on the cover she's like lying on his chest and it rose to number two on the hit charts in france oh, shit <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's alarming yeah shit right I mean, she clearly has uh, a lot of uh, emotional <laughs> complexity from her like childhood years with uh, Serge. He's the pianist. Serge Gainsborough was actually uh, an incredibly influential um, multifaceted artist in France, like one of the most important artists of his day. Uh, he was like a, a painter, a poet, mm. uh, yeah. a filmmaker, and a musical artist uh, that dabbled in like a bunch of different genres like uh, rock and electronica and, mm. and, and reggae and what have you. Kind of groundbreaking. Uh, yeah, place. very groundbreaking in his time and, and incredibly influential also to musicians outside France. He was also known for being like a provocateur, doing incredibly provocative stuff like with his lyrics, like uh, sexuality, adding that uh, into his lyrics and stuff. Um, so as a provocateur, I'm sure uh, Charlotte Gainsborough saw some of that maybe in La Chantilly. Yeah, maybe. yeah, makes sense. But that's just that's the sort of thing, like in France, the sort of conflation of intellectualism and, yeah. and attraction to very young, young women, sort of revolting. This film is also dedicated to Andrei Tarkovsky, this Russian filmmaker who has these amazing films like Stalker and um, Solaris and Andrei Rublev. Uh, and I think you can see, you know, a few like visual uh, pinpoints to, to his stuff. Uh, it refers yeah. to a bunch of films. Uh, it also kind of, the, the opening segment kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, Don't Look Now as well, which also has like a... Death of a child and a, a, a sexual uh, situation between parents. You know, using genre and also referencing to loads of other films. Uh, it, that's also kind of something that he he hasn't really been known for doing so much. But no, but he, he it, did yeah. it for this movie. Clearly, in my view, the the opening scene with the child falling out of the window that has to be a reference to Game of Thrones, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> a, yeah, a direct reference. Yeah. to Game of Thrones, probably. Yeah. But then they'd have to be. Brother and sister, I suppose. Uh, yeah, but you know, Lush Frontier, he takes some liberties. Yeah, he you know? takes liberties. But he's probably a huge uh, fantasy literature fan. Well, you'd never know. Well, maybe. <laughs> maybe. 
Uh, but that's one, one way of starting your sort of narrative with a bang is killing a child. Yeah. It's always good. That always gets the audience going. <laughs> yeah. The juice is flowing. As a last comment or observation, um, interesting like um, connection with um, a different well-known Danish um, director person, uh, Hans Christian Andersen, the oh, yeah. uh, creator and gatherer of fairy tales. And this is something I picked up from a book called The New Extremism. There's an article by Aspion Grenstar where he talks about a slight similarity with The Steadfast Tin Soldier, which is a story about a tin soldier who only has one leg, who um, looks over at a ballerina. He's told by like a jack-in-the-box that he's not allowed to look at her. And then he gets blown out the window after he looks at her and then eaten by a fish. The fish gets captured, gets, he gets taken out and then kind of returns back to the same place but gets put in the fire. And then she also, by a gust of wind, gets blown into the fire and they kind of melt together into a, a metal heart or something. Very um, romantic. Yeah, it, it, that's actually his first uh, original story that he wrote. And a, a really nice one, I think. And it's all about looking, like the wrongness of looking or not being allowed to look. And I think this is interesting in terms of um, this kind of cinematic project as well, in terms of these extremely intense scenes that are provoking the spectator or putting the spectator in a situation, the things that, you know, you're not wanting to look at. and Yeah, I like think most normal people would never want to look at. Yeah. Um, you're sort of violating the viewer by showing it to them in, in sort of an extreme fashion. Oh. Uh, I thought that was like, a, there's an interesting connection between those uh, yeah, stories. Yeah, yeah. And it's worth noting that the, the reason why this connects is uh, that the, the representations of uh, fear, despair and grief originally are tin soldiers, yeah. toys. So that's a very kind of a direct visual reference. And of course, him being a Dane mm. growing up in Denmark, he'd yeah. be very familiar with uh, Hans Christian Andersen. I don't think the story is actually connected to it, but um, it's reminiscent of the Nutcracker, isn't it? Well, um, yeah. Amazing, amazing movie. Yeah, really good. So, Svara, do you have an unpleasant recommendation for us? I do. I do, I do. And uh, this recommendation is actually uh, an interview. Uh, and it's very unpleasant. And it's um, the ghostwriter of uh, Art of the Deal, the book purportedly written by Donald Trump. <laughs> of course, it was ghostwritten. It's an interview with Tony Schwartz, interviewed by Jane Meyer for The New Yorker. Back in July of 2016, which mm. was before, of course, he got elected president, mm -hmm. but on the cusp of uh, grabbing the nomination for the Republican Party and stuff. And it's just an incredibly depressive read, but it goes into great detail about sort of um, why Trump is the way he is and in what ways he is on a sort of personal level. Apparently, the writing of the book was just incredibly depressing for the writer who had aspirations of becoming like uh, an actual great investigative journalist or journalist mm. writer of books. Uh, like uh, some of his favorite authors were, were uh, journalist authors like... Um, John McPhee, which is one of my favorite authors. Mm. I actually think I, I have talked about him earlier on this yeah. podcast. 
But he didn't end up doing that. He ended up uh, taking this sort of uh, assignment for Donald Trump. And the way he got it was actually kind of interesting oh, yeah. because he wrote a sort of scathing article about him as this sort of bullying thug of a, a sort of a real estate uh, mogul and how he sort of bullied, wanted to bully people out of low income housing to build like these horrible things. Mm. A tradition which he, he he's gotten from his father, Fred Trump. And because he wrote this horrible article about Donald Trump, Donald Trump really liked it. He was like, yeah, I'm, I'm this uh, bad <laughs> uh, bully, like I'm this big strong guy. <laughs> so he, 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 he really took to Tony Schwartz. And they got sort of a friendly rapport. And uh, he was offered the chance to, I think he was interviewing him actually, and he got the opportunity to write his book because mm. uh, Trump had been offered a deal for a, for a biography. And so he did, and he sort of had to, he set up a bunch of interviews with Trump basically, but it wasn't possible to get much out of him because as soon as they talked for more than like five minutes about Trump's family or whatever, Trump just got incredibly bored and started drifting off and didn't want to do it. So they got to this sort of arrangement where (laughs) instead of actually interviewing him, he just followed him around and sort of just listened in on calls he did. And so he got this sort of real experience of how Trump sort of dealt with people on a day-to-day basis. And basically it was just incredibly transactional, like everything that uh, could do something good for Trump, like uh, he loved that person. Oh, best person ever. And Mm. if uh, they couldn't deliver or couldn't uh, do something for him, then there were horrible people like shitheads and uh, assholes. Mm. And it was like that with all sort of interactions he ever had. And it's just sort of chronicling the completely morally void way in which Donald Trump has sort of maneuvered his entire career. Specifically, of course, this is talking about in the 80s, right? Mm, mm. And just the way Tony Schwartz sort of has felt about this and how he inadvertently sort of has led to, which led to The Apprentice, right? Like that book was featured prominently in like the in the media for that. And yeah. then again, which led, of course, to his nomination as the Republican candidate mm. and then to the, winning the presidency. So he has like felt a lot of guilt about this. And stuff. Oh, so it's just a really, like, I, I feel like I've explained at least like part of this article, but it's well worth reading. It's a really good read and uh, really depressing and unpleasant. So that's my recommendation. Oh, that does sound interesting. I'll read that. <laughs> yeah, I will share the link. But uh, do, do you have a recommendation? I do have a recommendation and um, it's a bit of music. Kind of a reply to one I had last time, which was, you know, this very rhetorically correct, intelligent rap song. This one is almost the opposite. It's an artist called Lance, and he's an um, American rapper from Cincinnati. It's the song called Bring Me That Shit. And he's a mumble rapper, which uh, is like the antithesis of these very like skillful lyricists. And this song has like, strong horror vibes. It has this horror theme pounding in the background while he's kind of out of breath, panting, like uh, intense, confused, worried. And he's just saying, bring me that shit. <laughs> bring me that shit. <laughs> it's kind of this, this really sort of pulsating, intense. <laughs> yeah, it has a strong horror vibe. And it's, it's, it's you know, it's really great, actually. Sounds and, amazing. Um, really intense. And quite strange, really. He's kind of got a, a bit of notoriety for this very specific vocal style with a lot of uh, shortness of breath and heavy breathing. And um, apparently uh, <laughs> he posted a video of himself uh, at some point uh, with a gunshot to his arm and he claimed that he had been kidnapped. 
and then tried to cut off his hand and stuff. Uh, yeah, I, 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 was it true? Uh, I, I have no idea. I mean, the, the gunshot <laughs> thing, I think, is true. And, uh, you know, he's been charged with a bunch of felonies and, and stuff. And he, yeah. Like the music video shows him walking around in this uh, suburbia, like dirty suburbia, and his eyes are like bulging. He's really intense. And he's just this um, thin, tall uh, black guy. And he's really intense, just bring me that shit. <laughs> kind of uh, drug-induced uh, madness. Yeah, I hope yeah. somebody brings him a shit because... Yeah. Otherwise, yeah, he's desperate for it. Yeah, it's, he needs that. Shit. Yeah, and it's uh, it's amazing, really. It's um, very like moody, and uh, I do like when rap successfully manages to use like horror elements, and uh, this is one of the best examples of it, actually. I think. Yeah, yeah it can be super effective. I yeah. I love that sort of uh, when rap goes goes into that territory. Yeah. It's always cool when when you have. Uh, because it's a genre that, well, horrorcore and mm. a lot of that stuff, like it's been around for a long time. Yeah. And some of it's pretty bad, like the a lot of the insane clown posse stuff. Yeah. So, like I'm not related acts to that. But a lot of the more newer stuff, especially in this like mumble scene, is pretty mm. cool. Like mm. you have the Suicide Boys and mm. uh, a lot of those more emotionally dark rappers often use uh, a lot of the audio language of horror movies and mm. the musical language of horror movies as sort of samples and effects. Mm. And in this case, he himself is also kind of threatening. Like the, the vocal performance is really intense. I love threatening music. It's, yeah. so, it's fun. I love that vibe because it's quite rare in music mm. when you have that sort of... Like I feel there's, there's so little danger in mm. modern artists, mm. like at least mainstream artists. Mm-hmm. And rock and roll is fucking dead, right? Mm. Like in the mainstream. So, so it's, it's nice to see that at least in, in hip hop, there is this sort of element of danger... As an artistic choice that I really just vibe it, I, th- I find it cool. Yeah, nice. So uh, next episode, we're going to talk about another one of Lars von Trier's films, Nymphomaniac. We're going to see the director's cut, which is a combination of, because it was released as volume one and volume two. We're going to see them both, which is a longer affair, which also stars Charlotte Gainsborough. She's amazing in that. And um, the music for this episode was made by Umulium, that's Euskarning and Sverre Ogor. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can send us an email at unpleasantmovies at protonmail.com. And if you want to see our other recommendations for unpleasant movies, you can go into Mubi and find our list of unpleasant movies. Just type in unpleasant movies. And it's a bunch of good stuff. Good stuff. Give me that shit. Give me that shit. Bring me that shit. Bring me that shit. <laughs> so that's it for now. Have a lovely something or other. Yeah, have a lovely rest of the summer or whatever. Start of the summer. Or uh, if you're listening to this way in the future, maybe it's winter. And try not to let uh, nature drive you mad. Mm. Depression and anxiety drive you to cut off your clitoris. And we'll see you in the next episode. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.